This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show, and we welcome back to our show Tom Hartman, the progressive nationally and internationally syndicated talk show host, whom Talkers Magazine named as America's number one most important progressive talk show host. He is also an author. He has some 30 books, and his most recent one is The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America, and How to Restore Its Greatness. The Hidden History series, really interesting look at American history, a number of books. How many books altogether in the Hidden History series, Tom? This is the eighth, and I'm just finishing up the ninth. So as far as I know, there'll be nine of them. We'll see. <laughs> we started out with, with the, the original idea was let's do four. So we keep adding books. Well, great. And I'm glad you do. And I'm glad you have. Let me ask you this. The Hidden History of Neoliberalism. A lot of people was look at that title and would say, huh, what is that about? Neoliberalism has always struck me as an odd term for what it is. So first tell us what it is. And we're going to get to why well, it's important. And I would like to know why the term was invented. I always thought it was liberals that glow in the dark. So I'm really glad that this book was written. <laughs> there you go. Um, in Europe, uh, liberal econo- economics is uh, sometimes referred to as laissez-faire uh, economics, the French phrase for it, which um, basically means government hands off, uh, no government interference in the, in the marketplace, no social safety net, no laws to protect labor. Um, no laws to regulate business or protect consumers, um, you know, they, just raw, naked capitalism. And uh, when these guys got together in, in uh, initially in the 30s, but they really put this together in the mid-40s um, in, uh, in Switzerland, they all, all of them except uh, Milton Friedman were Europeans and uh, European economists. And so what they wanted to do was come up with a new way that governments could kind of harden themselves so that they never again, never again would a European nation either flip communist or fascist as Spain, Italy, and Germany had done. And so they thought the answer was liberal, uh, you know, what you and I would call conservative economics, but they wanted to put a twist on it. So they called it the new liberal economics. And neo, of course, is the Greek uh, prefix for new. So that's where the word came from. The, The bottom line basically is that neoliberalism says that um, the economy is all-powerful, that, that, that uh, you know, a billion decisions are made in the economy every moment. Right now, as we're speaking, there's probably a thousand people trying to decide which brand of orange juice to buy. So uh, because of that, the market has its own wisdom and its own intelligence and its own data, and therefore uh, anything that government does to interfere with that is going to produce a bad outcome. Now, this is a completely bogus, nonsensical argument that the entire thing is founded on. It's like saying whichever NFL team wins the most games this season, next year gets to decide how many players it's going to have on the field. They get to make their own rules. They get to decide whether they can grab face masks and and kick guys in the crotch. Um, And the the other team can or can't. In other words, um, you know, neoliberalism argues that the billionaire class and the big corporations should essentially be making all the decisions in a democracy that um, they should be contributing to campaigns, that they should be running politics, that that because they are such successful players in the world of economics, they should not be taxed, which is why we have a, you know, our average billionaire in America is paying only a 3% income tax and the average corporation is paying nothing in taxes. 
Um, they they argue that corporations should be free to find the cheapest labor anywhere in the world, which is you know the premise the behind so-called free trade, which has shipped sixty thousand factories and fifteen million jobs out of America and into China. Um, they uh, they argue that. There should be no regulatory agencies that, uh, in fact, Milton Friedman in one of his books even argues we shouldn't license doctors, that the magical free market will solve all those problems if a company is selling products that kill children or if doctors, people who say that they're doctors aren't and they operate on people and kill them, you know, eventually the word will spread and the marketplace will correct itself and those people will find themselves ostracized. And, uh, you know, so there's this whole series of kind of pseudo-logical fallacies that underlie it. But Reagan bought into it in 1981, hook, line, and sinker. And, uh, they, you know, they tried it in Chile in 1973, and it turned into a disaster. So America was the first large-scale experiment, although Russia was the second. They, they, they flipped Russia neoliberal in 1991. And it produced what neoliberalism always produces, what raw unregulated capitalism has produced for over a thousand years, and that is oligarchy and 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 essentially, you know, criminals running the government, oligarchs. Your subtitle, the beginning, is how Reaganism gutted America. Could you explain that and bring that history forward for us? Yeah, when when Reagan came into office, the, the United States was suffering under high inflation and an essentially stagnant economy. Um, this was the result of, of two things. So one was in, in 71 and 73, Nixon, uh, those two years, Nixon reduced the value of the U.S. dollar by 10%. He did it twice. He devalued the dollar relative to all the rest of the world's currencies, um, pulled us out of the Bretton Woods Agreement from 19, the 1940s. It was 43. And... Um, that that in and of itself would have injected uh, about uh, you know a twenty percent inflation in the United States, but it would have taken probably a decade for it to appear. It would have been gradual. But um, in seventy three, you had the the war you know between Israel and Egypt, and and because we supported Israel, the Arabs cut off our oil supply. So suddenly the price of oil it, it doubled in a week, and it and it doubled again in the second week, and because everything in America in one way or another is affected by the price of oil, you know, whether it's manufacturing or transportation or home heating or whatever. Um, we got this horrible inflation. And uh, then there was a double whammy in 1979 when the Shaw fell and um, and came to the United States for, for cancer treatment. And the Iranians cut off, you know, the, the new regime in Iran cut off all the oil supply to the Western countries, basically stopped producing oil for a while. And, you know, another big price spike. So uh, Milton Friedman had been trying to sell this neoliberalism that these guys hatched in Switzerland in, in 1945. He'd been trying to sell this for two decades, and he'd been considered a crackpot throughout the 50s, 60s, and early 70s. But uh, he was widely circulated in the United States. He, he wrote a syndicated newspaper column. He, he was on TV constantly. He was a huge self-promoter, very, very competent self-promoter. And he had a lot of big money behind him from from big corporations who wanted to see their taxes dropped. And so Friedman started pushing in the late 70s um, for neoliberalism to be adopted here and around the world. Um, Maggie Thatcher adopted it in the UK in 79. Jimmy Carter uh, sort of tried it in 79, deregulating the trucking industry, the rail industry and the and the airlines, the travel industry. 
And uh, and then Reagan came into office in 81 and just fully embraced it, hook, line, and sinker, top to bottom. Um, dropped the top tax rate from 74% down to 25%, uh, drilled all kinds of corporate loopholes in the tax laws so corporations could get out of paying their taxes, um, put uh, Ann Gorsuch in charge of the Environmental Protection Agency. Her son is Neil Gorsuch. He's on the court. She ended up being embroiled in a series of bribery scandals where big corporations were paying her off to cut their regulations and had to resign in, in, in disgrace. But, you know, he just went after all of our regulatory and protective agencies on the theory that the, the, the free market would work much more efficiently. Tom Harmon, I'd like to get to the politics of this. The beginning sure. of your book, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, you talk at some length about Germany in the 1920s and 1930s. You point out that after the First World War, uh, Germany continued its single-payer health care system, which it had created in 1884. It expanded on Social Security. Uh, it had a national pension and sickness benefit scheme, what we'd call Social Security, paid family and sickness leave, a program for low-income housing, schools, parks, hospitals, and a national program of unemployment insurance, all as of the late 1920s, and yet Germany slid into fascism. That is a story that resonates and is particularly frightening for me now, and I'm wondering if you could explain how that happened and what you think the lessons are from that history. Yeah. Well, the, the, the reality is that Germany became fascist in large part because they had lost World War I. And as, as uh, John Maynard Keynes predicted when the Treaty of Versailles uh, was finally signed, which imposed huge punitive uh, reparations on Germany. You know, they had to pay to, re to rebuild Europe. Um, he said, you know, if you guys enforce this, you're going to have World War II. It's, you know, the Germans will not tolerate this. This will destroy their standard of living. And uh, sure enough, it did. And so, you know, Hitler rose to power claiming that Germany had been stabbed in the back, his phrase, in fact, kind of his slogan, and that he was going to make Germany great again. And so that's that's what drove the rise of fascism. But, uh, the th you know, the three founders, the major founders of neoliberalism were F.A. Hayek, uh, Ludwig von Mises and, and um, Milton Friedman. And Hayek, uh, Hayek and Mises were both Germans who had to flee Germany, uh, had to flee the Nazis, frankly, uh, you know, both, both to England and then both eventually to the United States. And Hayek, in his book, The Road to Serfdom, he lays out a hypothesis that neither Friedman nor Mises agreed with, but Hayek was really hot on this, that the only reason that Germany became fascist was because they had this strong social welfare state, and that made the people you know, passive and pliant and happy, and as a result, Hitler could come in and BS them and, and rise to power. Um, it was completely ahistoric. It makes no sense in the context of the actual history of what happened in Germany and the rise of Hitler and Nazism. But uh, that was his story, and he was sticking by it. And that was part of you know what Reagan adopted was, um, uh, in fact, it, it really in the United States it goes back a little before that. In 1951, and I and I don't recall if I write about this in the book or not. I, I know I wrote about it at, at length in the book on in the hidden history of American oligarchy. In 1951, uh, Russell Kirk wrote a book called The Conservative Mind, in which he predicted that if the American middle class and the social safety net that came out of the New Deal 
continued to grow as rapidly as they were. By 1951, we had a, a, over a third of Americans were in the middle class, which had just like never happened anywhere in the world before. But the New Deal was building a middle class. And it continued to, by the way, by, by the time Reagan came into office, 65 percent of Americans were in the middle class. It's now down to 45 percent because of Reaganism. But anyhow, in, in 51, um, uh, Russell Kirk predicted that if the middle class continued to grow as rapidly as it was, people would cease to be afraid. They would be wealthy enough that young people would start telling their elders to go screw themselves, that women would demand an independent life outside of the kitchen and the bedroom, and that minorities would forget their place in society and start demanding rights that they, you know, that weren't appropriate for them. And, um, you know, he was largely considered a crackpot. Um, uh, William F. Buckley and Barry Goldwater loved his book and, and promoted it. But most Republicans were like, yeah, this guy's crazy. And then came the 60s. And the birth control pill was legalized in 61. And by 65, you had the so-called sexual revolution going on. By 67, you had young people burning their draft cards. By 68, 69, you had women burning their bras. You had uh, the civil rights movement in the United States on, uh, you know, running in high gear with Martin Luther King. And uh, well, actually, he'd been assassinated by then. But, but you get the point. All three of Kirk's predictions had come true. And that was the point at which the Republican Party said, whoa, this Russell Kirk guy was not a crackpot. He was right. And F.A. Hayek is right. And we need to gut the middle class because they're going to destroy our country. And that was Reagan's mission when he came into office in 1981 was to reduce the economic power of the middle class. So, you know, throw students into debt so that they're afraid and they won't be disrupting campuses anymore. You know, get women back in the bedroom and the kitchen and 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 keep down the, the those pesky minorities. And the, the way to do that is to is to strip them of their wealth. And in fact, we've seen a $50 trillion, trillion dollar transfer of wealth from the working class in America to the top 1% since 1981. We're speaking with Tom Hartman, America's progressive radio host. He is on this station, of course, every day, weekday from 12 to 3 o'clock. We're going to continue our conversation with Tom Hartman, whose new book is The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reagan Gutted America. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The Afternoon Buzz with legendary civil rights attorney from Ashfield, Buzz Eisenberg. Buzz will bring you his take on the day's news, plus arts, culture, and politics from the Valley, weekday afternoons at 4. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. The Afternoon Buzz, 101.5 WHMP. Hi, I'm Missy Tatro, Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Have we got some exciting news for you. And I'm Mortgage Originator Kimberly Gates. We're extending our offer to save up to $1,000 on your mortgage closing costs. There's still time to get a $750 closing credit plus another $250 when we pre-qualify you. Check out our new website and start your application now at bestlocalbank.com or come see us in person. As local lenders, we're here 
here for you every step of the way. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Missy Tatro. Or me, Kimberly Gates, and save up to $1,000 on your closing costs. Close by November 30th, be a new first mortgage customer, or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. Eat more kale, says the bumper sticker. Why assume I'm not eating enough kale? If you eat at Paul and Elizabeth's, there's always kale. There's the Caesar salad with kale, with romaine, or both. There's the vegetarian platter, vegetables sautéed to perfection, including kale. Or just order a side of sautéed greens. Some people treat kale like one of those good-for-you-but-no-one-really-likes-it things. Maybe those people have never been to Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Inside Thorns in Northampton. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, -on -one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. Smith Academy in Hatfield is accepting school choice applications through September 30th. With class sizes averaging 10 students, Smith Academy can offer more than 20 clubs, 7 AP courses, 14 sports teams, work studies and internships, free dual enrollment at HCC and Smith College, and computer science for all students. With a graduation rate of over 95%, most college bound, Smith Academy can prepare you for the next step. No cost to apply or attend. Call them or go to HatfieldPS.net and schedule a tour today. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with America's foremost progressive talk radio host, Tom Hartman, and author of some 30 books, the most recent being The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness. Tom Hartman, how do the Democrats fit into this? What about Clinton? And then could you try to sort out for me a little bit, tease out, how does Trump fit into the resurgence of neoliberalism, give everything to the corporations, all the power to the corporations and the wealthiest. So Clinton and Trump, in whatever order you'd like to do it. Sure. Well, it, in, in 1978, and 76 and 78, and two Supreme Court decisions, uh, Buckley and Bellotti, the Supreme Court legalized political bribery. Um, they said if billionaires or corporations want to give money to politicians, that's merely First Amendment protected free speech because money is not money. Money is actually speech. And at that point in time, the Democratic Party had was just rolling in dough from the unions. The you know a third of America was unionized, and so the Democratic Party just kind of shrugged their shoulders. But the GOP put their hand out and said, "Yeah, cross our palms with cash," and that floated Reagan into the White House in 1980 on a on a tsunami of mostly fossil fuel money. So. Um, uh, Reagan then started out. How do we? How do we uh, got? You know, part of neoliberalism is ending labor unions, and it also would have gutted the funding for the Democratic Party. So over the next twelve years of the Reagan Bush administrations, um, you saw union density in the United States go from a third of Americans down to about ten or twelve percent of Americans. And the result was in 1992, when Bill Clinton was running for president, he couldn't get enough money from the unions to to run a presidential campaign. So him and Al Fromm came up with this third way or new Democrat 
um, uh, idea, which was basically, okay, we'll we'll do what the Republicans are doing. We'll take money from corporations. We'll just be more selective about it. We'll only take money from the clean corporations, banks, pharmaceutical companies, investment houses, uh, stock brokerage companies, insurance companies. And, uh, you know, it worked and it got him into the White House. And then he fully adopted neoliberalism or largely adopted it by signing NAFTA, which, you know, Ross Perot warned about. Um, and, uh, you know, on, you know, throughout the throughout the 90s, uh, ending welfare as we know it, calling for the end of the era of big government. Um, and then in 2001, George W. Bush gave China most favored nation status. And, and you know, China rejected neoliberalism. They had instead adopted Alexander Hamilton's American plan from 1793. And uh, that made China rich and, and wiped us out. Reagan, excuse me, uh, Trump in 2016, essentially ran for president against neoliberalism. You will recall he said he was going to raise taxes on the rich and on corporations to the point that his friends wouldn't talk to him anymore and he'd get a nosebleed. He said he was going to bring back labor unions. He said he was going to bring our jobs back from overseas. He was going to end neoliberal free trade policies. Um, you know, he threw a couple of cosmetic tariffs tariffs up, but basically did nothing in those regards. In fact, did the opposite in those regards, continued a, a labor department that was hostile to labor. So, but I think that, you know, Trump came into office saying that he was going to end neoliberalism, not using those words, but, you know, identifying neoliberal policies and saying he was going to end them. And I think that's one of the reasons so many Americans voted for him. I mean, I, we lived in D.C. at the time, and I knew people in D.C. who, who uh, you know, neighbors of mine who were debating whether they should vote for Bernie or for Donald Trump, you know. Um, and they and they ultimately figured that uh, in the primaries that, you know, Bernie probably couldn't beat the Clinton machine. And so they'd vote for Trump and in the generally voted for Trump. And because they wanted to see neoliberalism ended and Hillary Clinton was still defending the policies of her husband. So I, I really think that Trump election was a sign that was the turning point for America in my mind. I remember being in New Hampshire, going door to door for the uh, election in uh, when Hillary Clinton was the nominee, went into the list were for Democratic households. And there I was talking for the first person I'd ever met who said, oh, I voted for Bernie in the primary. I said, that's great. I, so did I, by the way. Um, and, he, and I said, and how about the election? I put you down for Hillary. And he said, oh, no, 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 I'm voting for Trump. And I, it was it was like an explosion in my mind trying to figure out how yep. is this possible. But a lot of people felt exactly that way because of what you describe as these neoliberal policies, which they wanted to repeal. And Trump was with him and Hillary wasn't. That's right. That's right. It was it's, it was the great tragedy of the 2016 election. I mean, if the if the Democrats had put up anybody other than Hillary against uh, against Trump, I think, that I, you know, for example, Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, I think they would have had a good chance. But, um, you know, um, that was the point. I really believe that was the point. In fact, I think it might have even been earlier. I think, you know, in, 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 in 2012, when, when Obama was reelected, the anti-neoliberalism sentiment was really growing in America. So, you know, we tend to go in these 80-year cycles of history in the United States. And in those 80-year cycles um, that always end with a depression and a war, Every 80 years, I mean, 80 years ago was World War II and the Great Depression. 80 years before that was the crash of 1864 and the Civil War. 80 years before that was the crash of 1701 and the American Revolution. Um, but within those 80-year periods, there are these 40-year 
cycles of, you know, starting out going very progressive and then ending up going very conservative um, for 40 years each. And I think we're at the end of the 40 year conservative cycle in this time. You know, in this, and this one has been labeled neoliberalism. We've been speaking with Tom Hartman. His newest book, available at your local independent bookstore, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America, and How to Restore Its Greatness. It is a really interesting read. I love the sequence of chapters. Uh, Bill Clinton hearts the neoliberal revolution through George Bush, through neoliberalism blowing up in Bush's face. Obama rescues neoliberalism from itself. Trump attacks neoliberalism. And then some hope. Biden challenges neoliberalism's core concepts. Yep. Tom Harmon, God thank you. Him. Thank you so very much thank for your you, book. Bill. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for inviting me. You can listen to Tom Hartman every day here on WHMP from noon to three. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. More than 100 people turned out to celebrate the life of Dr. Martha Marty Nathan at the Bombeck Center in Florence on Sunday. Senator Joe Comerford was in attendance and told the Daily Hampshire Gazette that Nathan was a prophet and a fierce and remarkable woman who never stopped working for justice and peace. Nathan died on November 29th of last year at the age of 70 from lung cancer. In an apparent hoax, a person claiming to be from Texas Governor Abbott's office called Northampton and Amherst officials last Friday to tell them a bus full of migrants from the Texas border were on their way to Hampshire County. State Rep. Lindsay Sabadosa says she never thought it was a credible threat, but the event raised awareness in the community about the ability to respond rapidly to a large group of people suddenly in need of shelter. We do want to be prepared, and I, I think that is the moral of the story. Communities do need to have a plan in place. It is effectively very similar to an emergency response, so it is good to know who all the people that you would call on. Sabadosa says the fact the caller gave advance warning, unlike the situation on Martha's Vineyard, and the caller's given name was not from an actual person that worked in Governor Abbott's office, were telltale signs the call was fake. Amherst Regional High School administrators sent a letter to parents saying they believe they know who set the fires in the school's bathrooms last week. Multiple students believed to be responsible were asked to stay home the day after the incident. Officials are continuing to review multiple videos from surveillance cameras and interview other students before concluding their investigation. For today, mostly cloudy chance for showers and thunderstorms, especially this afternoon, high 76 to 80. Tonight, chance for evening showers and thunderstorms, otherwise mostly cloudy, overnight lows around 60. And the outlook for Tuesday, partly sunny, chance for a shower, highs in the low to mid 70s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Un juez federal nombró el jueves a un veterano jurista de Nueva York para que se desempeñe como árbitro independiente y revise los registros, incluidos documentos altamente clasificados que fueron incautados durante una búsqueda del FBI en la casa del expresidente Donald Trump en Florida el mes pasado. La jueza de Distrito de Estados Unidos, Aileen Cannon, autorizó al maestro especial recién nombrado Raymond Deary a revisar el tramo completo de registros tomados en la búsqueda de Mar-a-Lago el 8 de agosto, a pesar de que el 
Departamento de Justicia había dicho que el árbitro no debería tener acceso a los aproximadamente 100 documentos marcados como clasificados. En una orden redactada con dureza, Cannon también rechazó una solicitud del Departamento de Justicia de reanudar el uso de los registros clasificados incautados en su investigación criminal en curso sobre la presencia de documentos de alto secreto en la propiedad de Florida. Cannon ordenó al departamento la semana pasada que hiciera una pausa en la revisión de los registros clasificados hasta una nueva orden judicial o un informe del maestro especial. Cannon ordenó al maestro especial que primero revisara los documentos marcados como clasificados y luego considerara los ajustes rápidos a las órdenes de la corte según sea necesario. Ella fijó como fecha límite el 23 de noviembre para que el maestro especial completara el trabajo. En otras informaciones, el presidente Joe Biden pidió a los estadounidenses que hablaran en contra del racismo y el extremismo durante una cumbre en la Casa Blanca el jueves y dijo que le pediría al Congreso que haga más para responsabilizar a las empresas de redes sociales por difundir el odio. Pido al Congreso que elimine la inmunidad especial para las empresas de redes sociales e imponga requisitos de transparencia mucho más estrictos para todas ellas, dijo Biden. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is Mayor's Monday on WHMP. We welcome back to our show the Mayor of East Hampton, Nicola Chappelle. Madam Mayor, thank you for being with us. We really appreciate your time and your insights. I'd like to... Uh, share this with you. I had on my desk uh, the report from East Hampton going back, I guess it must be two years now, although my uh, COVID period sense of timing is completely off. Uh, and it was a report about policing and the future of policing in East Hampton. I would like to ask you where police reform stands in East Hampton. I know there's mm -hmm. been some media coverage in the last few weeks about a social worker uh, that is being has been or is being hired Uh, in the city? Well, I would like to know alternatives to policing, civilian response, and the like. Where does that stand in your city? Um, yes. Yeah, so right now, we, um, we've brought on the community social worker and a co-responder uh, that's a licensed clinician. Uh, the co-responder works directly with the police department responding to calls that might have a mental health component or clearly have a mental health component. And then this community social worker uh, follows up on a lot of those calls, but also is beginning community-based program and case management, where we might have somebody who's been interacting with police or fire on a regular basis, or just experiencing um, some difficulty. And the social worker will engage, do some case management, connect them to resources. Um, the one, two team of the social worker And um, the co-responder has been very powerful in a very short period of time. It took us almost a year to hire um, a licensed community social worker. The labor market is just really tight in that area, as you can imagine. And then expanded public health department by adding a public health nurse who works with the whole community, but also the community social worker around medical issues that a particular case or person um, may need. And we've seen a lot of the increase of mental health specific calls um, 
for me and as you're listening and looking at dispatch information um, is a good indicator that uh, the community is responding to the service and asking specifically for it. Um, the other big initiative in that report was upgrading, but also um, tuning our public safety, fire and police, but of course, mostly police, their calls, where they respond, being able to map calls, being able to map any um, police, um, you know, any police interactions and, and whatnot. Where we are, we have the software. Um, when we tried to install it, our, our servers were running, um, we found out Windows XP, and uh, there was a actually an article on the front page of the, the Gazette about a, a year and a half ago where our IT director was shown in our IT room, it was spaghetti and she had stopped a fire with like pieces of, of putty and gum that because the servers um, wires started on. So we took a step back and we got several grants. We're redoing um, all of the data center over there as well as with the, the city and I've started to roll in uh, that new police software, which has been um, recommended and checked out by the post commission. So that is delayed more than we wanted, but um, we had to spend $400,000 to upgrade our, the backbone of our IT, our IT um, to get that done. The post commission, we should note it's an acronym. I think it's police officers safety, uh, safety and training. Um, and it is the state commission part of the uh, criminal justice reform bill passed by the legislature. Uh, Mayor LaChapelle, I'd like to ask this. You mentioned that there is a community social worker now on staff in East Hampton. There is also a co-responder uh, who goes out with the police on certain calls. Could you tell us how that uh, works in East Hampton? I take it these are two separate people in two separate positions, if that's if that, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong about that. But tell me how this co-responder model works, because it is different than some other models. Uh, it is certainly one of the models that is being uh, experimented with and tried. How does it work in East Hampton? In East Hampton, it's uh, actually a grant program um, in collaboration with clinical support options. Uh, and the call comes in and there are questions by the dispatcher or by the, um, the actual person calling 911 that describes the situation. Um, our co-responder is available not 24 hours a day. We split her part-time with Hadley and um, she'll get in the car and, and go out with the responding um, officer uh, to check on the situation, see if she can do some de-escalation or, or what it looks like um, at the scene and, and maybe provides um, intervention with the person actually the police were called for or family members, whatnot. It's really kind of brought the whole um, scene when she's involved. If something is coded to have a possible mental health um, um, piece of it or completely mental health. Um, it's, it's made a lot of difference and quite honestly, it's given a new skill set to our police officers, but also serves as a trauma debrief um, for them. Many of the debates about police and civilian response make the point or 
at least focus on the issue of whether police response, a police response or an armed police response in certain situations actually escalate the situation and that it's not productive for the police to be there in certain situations. And I'm wondering how in this co-responder model in East Hampton, the co-responder, the social worker and the officer both responding to a call, how they work out who's the lead, how they cooperate, when do the police step back, when is the social worker or the clinician uh, in the lead. Can you tell us a bit more about how it works? It's very similar to how it would work if it was, you know, multiple police establishing the lead who might have a relationship, the words of the 911 call itself, um, other information they may have already about the home. There are some folks and then getting to the scene and, you know, triaging the scene, kind of the, the look and the, the checking out um, and then the decision is made and it might be back and forth and it might be just the co-responder going forward and checking in. Um, but it, it depends on what the scene, they take all available information and work together. And sometimes, um, you know, it's the wrong call and it's the police are involved because there's a threat of imminent danger. And sometimes, and so that switches off or sometimes the co-responder will be like, okay, and police will talk. It's like, let's go with a co-responder or sometimes it's both. You said that this policy or this program is working in your judgment. Uh, how do you know? Because we're seeing more calls coming in through 911 that are describing or asking specifically for mental health or um, maybe drug-related manic situations where um, an armed intervention isn't appropriate at all. And members of the community are specifically asking for those supports. So I feel that tells me that the, um, the word is getting out there. Uh, as well as the response, I, you know, we're a small city and people talk about the changes in our departments all the time. Uh, the proof of the pudding will be when we have the software up and running and we can run the dispatch codes through and see, you know, where we were two years ago, where we are now, but also uh, the co-responder often in uh, consultation with the community social worker follow up. You know, so it's very common for the co-responder to be involved in the the initial call, and then two days later are are reaching out um, to to the person, you know, to the person on that the resident on that call and saying, "Hey, were you able to follow up, or how are you feeling? We have referrals. Can I, you know, I'll come and check on you, or something like that." And and following those clinical notes and getting it into an interactive database will be will be the real, you know the data point measure. One of the data points I'd really be interested in knowing is whether the model that you've implemented or that the city of East Hampton has implemented has resulted okay. in fewer arrests or fewer assault yeah. charges, um, uh, fewer injuries, uh, more, uh, more involvement of, well, hospitals or um, uh, mental health agencies. I'm wondering if there, that data will be available and how you intend to evaluate it. Um, it will be available. Uh, I'm too looking forward to that, uh, to, to see where we are other than the antidotes and what we're parsing out from dispatch. We're, um, and it will be available and, and what it reveals, we'll take a good look at it. Um, 
and track down and, and actually the community social worker and we would pull in CSO and the co-responder themselves as well as public health um, to take a look and, and figure out and measure it up to national data. You said that East Hampton is running this program on a grant. Uh, yep. Is it your intention to ask the council to uh, fund this program going forward? When does the grant uh, run out? A number of questions along those lines. Uh, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, so the grant was actually renewed um, and you have to opt into it. Uh, we would love and I would will add this position. I'd love to do it full time into the budget. Um, one, it's uh, to get somebody who's trained truly in trauma um, response and have that person with proper counseling and, and supervision, the co-responder and the contract with CSO is a better way to go, I feel. If we could, if the grant were to end or uh, the co-responder was available for like the other half, we only have um, the co-responder half of the time, I would go to council in a heartbeat and ask for that money. And I'm, and I'm hoping that grant or not, we'll be given an opportunity to bring the service um, into the general fund budget, the operating budget. I would do that in a heartbeat. Last question on this topic. The server being back up and operating so that you can access the data and follow up on what has happened with these calls, uh, mm -hmm. when was that going to be uh, in, in operation? When will it be functioning? We have all the pieces in-house now. It's set up. I would, it's much slower than we want um, because of the supply chain, but we're hoping in the next four months, if not sooner, but to be safe, we're saying four months. And parts of it, like we've added some to dispatch and we've upgraded their software so it'll interface more. Um, it's, you know, what I call an unfortunate opportunity. We, you know, because of the situation and where we are in the world, um, the city was able to, you know, we're probably over a million dollars, well over a million dollars um, investing in our IT infrastructure, cybersecurity. And that was a big thing. This, this software program um, has a lot of detail in it. So we needed to make sure we could keep it safe. We had to do new firewalls. So we're hoping four months. We've also brought all of the IT operations into a civilian led department. So it all comes through the city IT department. They oversee what's going on in every department in the city except for schools. We're speaking and that with, was a part of the report as well. We're speaking with East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle. This is Mayor's Monday. We'll be back with the mayor right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control uh, by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. At American National, we understand the tried and true farm and ranch lifestyle, and what's important to you is important to us. 
You deserve an insurance plan custom-made to meet all the specific needs of your agribusiness operation. American National offers flexible farm and ranch policies with package options to help better protect your livelihood. We're right by your side. For more information and to connect with a local American National agent, just visit AmericanNational.com. American National Property and Casualty Company and Affiliates, Springfield, Missouri. When somebody dies, even if it's somebody old or somebody sick and the family is expecting it, it's still a shock. For the past 110 years, the Saluzniak family has opened the doors to their home for generations of Hampshire, Hamden, and Franklin County families, offering comfort and guidance when it's needed most. There's a certain assurance from knowing that for 110 years, four generations have offered caring help with honesty, integrity, understanding, and the highest standards. The Saluzniak family wants you to know they understand things may have changed, but their dedication to helping your loved ones in your time of loss has never wavered and it never will. They are here for you taking every precaution and will help you understand how you can pay tribute during this challenging time. Saluzniak Funeral Home up at North Street, Northampton. Oh, people have always had a hard time saying Saluzniak. It seems that the CZ always gets everybody. Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton. They're not easy to spell, but they are CZ to spell. Hi, I'm Missy Tatro, Assistant Vice President and Senior Mortgage Originator at Greenfield Cooperative Bank and its Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Have we got some exciting news for you. And I'm Mortgage Originator Kimberly Gates. We're extending our offer to save up to $1,000 on your mortgage closing costs. There's still time to get a $750 closing credit plus another $250 when we pre-qualify you. Check out our new website and start your application now at bestlocalbank.com or come see us in person. As local lenders, we're here for you every step of the way. So come on over to the co-op and see me, Missy Tatro. Or me, Kimberly Gates, and save up to $1,000 on your closing costs. Close by November 30th, be a new first mortgage customer, or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. On this Mayor's Monday, we are speaking with East Hampton Mayor Nicole LaChapelle. During the break, uh, we had continued our conversation about the police and the co-responder model and how that is working in East Hampton. I'd appreciate it if you would share some of that information with our listeners, Madam Mayor. I guess first, how long has the program been going on for? And have the police uh, supported it, resisted it, bought into it? Mm-hmm. What's the story on that? How long has it been going on? I, I want to say almost a year. I don't. I would need to get back to you with the exact number of months. Uh, we did a three-month pilot and then asked for an extension, um, and we got that. And I think that's for another six months. So um, that that's kind of my foggy memory, but certainly can can get the actual um, months. We're more, you know, we don't think about how long we've been doing it. We think about how long we can do it. Um, for the grant and then get to council for hopefully, um, you know, further support from the program. Uh, interestingly, uh, the biggest advocates for more, for more co-responder time is uh, police administration and the police union. Um, very supportive, have seen um, just the value of having a co-responder. Um, and are asking for, you know, more time. Can we get, you know, a full-time person? Uh, ulti- 
ideally we'd love to get two. You know, so we've got a 24, kind of almost 24 seven coverage or at least coverage, you know, seven days a week. Um, I think, I, I just wanna go back a little bit to the model we have. Um, to have a co-responder that is an employee of the city without connection to a clinical trauma-based organization, um, I think is precarious. Um, I would rather, given the intensity of the work, the training, the ongoing work, I really feel the partnership with um, a CSO, a CDH, or a ServiceNet or whatnot is imperative for our version of, um, of this model. So the clinician themselves gets the support, you know, um, and training they need in very, very intense work, very intense work where, you know, it, it's about managing, you know, um, emotionally, behaviorally, um, both the, the scene of the call, but also the resources that respond and, and acknowledging, you know, where they're coming from. Right. The de-escalation, I'm sure, is yes. really intense work. Yes. Uh, let's, let's turn to another aspect of East Hampton today. A lot of art and a lot of music going on in the city. Uh, tell us about that. So, like, I actually, I'm, I was thinking mid last week about what was going on um, in Amherst, in Northampton, in East Hampton, and I, I just it was like um, just reappreciating um, falling in love with the Pioneer Valley when I thought of all of the music, very accessible, a lot of it free, um, that literally you could get on a bicycle. Um, or a bike share bike, uh, and within 20 minutes, uh, you'd be listening to some amazing music um, and cultural performances. I, you know, I, I could, you know, just be mayor of the festivals. Maybe that's the next thing I'll run. You know, <laughs> and, mayor and, is a huge know, a music special. fan. I remember when you came up with your like local hero yeah. musical playlist, right? When you first became mayor, that was great. Yes. Yeah. Definitely added some some groups every year. I do every every year. I'm like, oh, you know, this is the best year ever. And you know, Arca Arcadia Folk Fest and and the Mill Pond Live series, Taste of Northampton. I was very sad to miss Spouse at Taste of Northampton. I would, uh, you know, Ken Murray is is back on percussion and doing all sorts of things musically in the area. And you know, anything he does, I'm a big I'm a big fan. Um, so it. It's just a, a very wonderful time out in uh, the Valley. Does Mill Pond Live continue through the fall? No, it's done. Uh, they do two weekends in a row, Friday, Saturday, Friday, Saturday. Um, so that, that they're done is. for. I should also mention, too, um, you know, God forbid, across the county line, Holyoke and Springfield's music and festival lineup this year has been just incredible, just incredible um really have appreciated going back to my home county and uh catching food and music let's talk a bit more about east hampton art in the orchard for those yeah. for those who have never seen this you have missed something but you can now experience it so share that madam mayor so Art in the Orchard is at Park Hill Orchard, um, which is a wonderful orchard to go to and pick peaches and pears and apples and slush donuts and yummy stuff. 
um, slush and or donuts. That's not one thing. And then every <laughs> other year, imagine that, a slush donut. I, it's I like a donut smoothie. It. Could be okay. Could be okay. God, I wish yeah. I were oh, 10 and could you do that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I would definitely try it. But yeah, um, yeah so um, anyways. Uh, the Art in the Orchard. Tell our of- listeners who haven't been there what it is. Oh, so Park Hill Orchard is a biannual sculpture outside park that is juried. Um, This year, it's focusing on two specific artists, sculptors. They have a series of sculptures as you walk and pick the the fruits. You come upon a sculpture. There's a little map. Um, It's beautiful. You can go at any time. And then on the odd years um it's more it's it's more than two artists it's several artists and and that is um juried as well but it it there's nothing like it um in yeah. i would say in western mass and relatively large sculptures you walk from one to the other oh, it's it's spectacular it's massive. Ma- massive and and they have all their interactive and some make specific music and um, really multimedia. It's wonderful. It's free. Park, walk around, um, you know, bring your own food, have a picnic. It's all, it's all there. And it's all good. Thank you. The mayor of East Hampton, Nicole Achapelle, has been our guest on this Mayor's Monday. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. town, maybe even in your neighborhood, an immigrant is building a new life, trying to find their way, all while learning a new language. The International Language Institute offers free English classes for immigrants and refugees, for true beginners and others, like students in our Bridge to College and Careers program. One of the nation's top language schools is right here, with free English classes for immigrants and refugees. The International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillcorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station.